invite you at this time to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. As you recall, two weeks ago, we considered the, the genealogy of Christ that Luke gives us. And the main point that we took from that text is that, is that Luke is trying to intentionally make this parallel, this connection between Christ and Adam. Christ and Adam. And Christ is coming as the second Adam. That is, just as the first Adam was appointed to make that metaphorical last shot, as it were, to bring mankind into the new creation, to earn eternal life. But he failed. He sinned. He succumbed to the devil's temptations. Well, in the baptism of Christ, Jesus is appointed as the second Adam to do what Adam failed to do. And now, in Luke chapter 4, we see Jesus beginning his mission as he is driven out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So please turn your attention now to the reading of God's word, Luke 4, verses 1 through 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation... He departed from him until an opportune time. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, as one great commentator on this text has noted, that according to Satan's perspective, we can rightly call this passage the temptation of Jesus. But according to God's perspective, we can call this the probation of Jesus. Now, what do we mean by probation? Well, probation can refer to a period of testing. A period of testing. I think there's, there's a number of just common, ordinary, everyday examples of such probations. And one, one example that came to mind was from uh, the movie The Pursuit of Happiness. I think it came out 15 years ago. Uh, Will Smith was playing this, this character, Chris Gardner, which I believe was or is based on a true story. And in the movie, he was experiencing extreme financial difficulty. His wife leaves him, and he's in a, a very dire situation. And then he stumbles across his opportunity to be an intern broker. And this, this company 
has selected a number of interns to serve for a period of time. And after that period of time, the company will select one person to be hired on. Well, that is a probation. That's his period of testing. In the movie, he ends up getting selected and, and becomes very successful. But I think we've all experienced similar probations, right? A job interview is a, is a test. You either get it or you don't, based on your performance, based on your resume, your experience. Uh, you could think of tryouts for a sports team, right? That's a test, that's a probation. You know, boys and girls, school is one big test. Yes, you have lots of, lots of tests throughout your, your school year and your weeks, but school itself is one big test. At the end of each year, you either pass and move on to the next grade, or you don't. You get to the end of your senior year, you either graduate or you don't. So it's based on your work, your performance. Dating, in a sense, is a certain test or probation. There's many, many examples of, of these things in our ordinary life. However, there is one great probation or test that is much, much greater than these ordinary everyday examples, and this test is administered by God himself. In fact, every single person is born under this test. Every single person born in relationship to God under this test. And the principle, the standard of this test is pretty straightforward. We are called to obey God rather than Satan. There's no middle ground. There's a basic antithesis between this. You obey God or you obey Satan. And the consequences of this test are much, much more ultimate than merely making a sports team, getting a job, or getting into your favorite college. Life or death is on the line. In fact, it's this test that we see Jesus himself undergoing in our passage this evening. As he is confronted with this standard, this principle, whether he's going to obey God or obey Satan. And the consequences are ultimate, life or death. So this evening, what I would like us to do is consider ourselves uh, in light of this test, this probation. And I'd like to do this in, in three main ways. First, we'll consider how we all have failed the test. Then we'll consider how Christ has passed the test. And lastly, we'll, we'll consider life outside of the test. So again, I like, to, I like to consider ourselves in light of, of this, this probation, this test that is presented in our passage. And first we'll consider how we all have failed the test. Now recall what we considered last week. I briefly alluded to this. Luke is intentionally making this parallel between Adam in Genesis 1 through 3 and Christ. That Christ has come onto the scene with the identity as the second Adam. And he wants us to have this parallel, this connection in mind, as we now transition to Luke chapter 4. So as we come to this passage, the first question we should be asking ourselves is, is there somebody else in the Bible who was tempted or tested in a way similar to Christ? I think we, we, can, we can say yes. We go all the way back to the beginning of our Bibles. 
with the first Adam. For instance, just as Satan tempted Christ in verse 7, as he says, uh, leaving out all subtle, uh, subtlety, he says, if you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Gazing over the kingdoms of the world. Well, this harkens back to Genesis 3 as the serpent comes to our first parents and says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That is, the, the, the devil is saying, God's really restrictive. He's restricting happiness and true freedom. If you would just come on my side, make a pact with me, then you will experience what true freedom is. And we know how that story played out, right? Our first parents, they succumbed. They believed the lie. They made a pact with the devil and transgressed that covenant they had with their Lord. As a result, they earned death. They failed the test and earned death. And death spreads to all mankind. And there's a sense in which every single person who's born is in this same test before God. And hypothetically, we all could obey God perfectly, and we could earn eternal life, but we know that that's only a hypothetical in this age, after the fall, where we all are conceived in sin. That's our very nature. We're inclined towards evil. At an experiential level, I think we, we recognize this. We, we, we know what this is like. Sin is irrational. Think about those moments where you are tempted with, with sin. You know in your mind that, that course, the, the sinful course of action is only, only going to lead to a path of destruction, broken relationships, misery, joylessness. All too often we do it anyways. Why? Because we have that deep-seated desire and inclination towards that which is evil and wicked that resides at the very core of who we are. I mean, this is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, is he says that we all by nature are children of wrath. And as such, we naturally follow the prince of the power of the air. Well, who is that? What's the devil? We naturally follow the prince of the power of the air. In a lot of ways, this passage even harkens back to Israel's time in the wilderness. And what is Israel's time in the wilderness characteristic of? They're grumbling and complaining. Their sinfulness, a heart that, that's being revealed of, of still obeying the devil and his temptations over the law of their Lord. And we consider our own hearts. Every single day, we give in to the flesh, which we just considered from the law of God. We give in to this prince of the power of the air. Every single human being has failed this test miserably. If the test is obeying God rather than Satan, we have failed miserably. And the consequences, again, it's not just that we, we, we didn't get the job, we flunked out of school. The consequence is ultimate. This is death. Therefore, this sets us up 
to see why this passage is such good news, why this passage is indeed the gospel. Jesus, as the second Adam, is on the scene. We saw this last time. Jesus is appointed to do this work, but now we see him beginning that work. We see Jesus coming to do what Adam failed to do, to obey God rather than Satan. So this leads us now to, uh, to my second point, as we consider how Christ himself passed the test. Christ passed the test. So if you look with me in your Bibles at verse 1, verse 1, uh, Luke begins this chapter by saying, and Jesus full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Recall, two passages ago, we saw that the Spirit has come upon Christ in his baptism and immediately drives him out into the wilderness to be tempted or tested. Probably wondering, why? Why? is the Spirit coming upon Christ only to drive him out into the place of temptation. Again, we have to recognize the context. This is the second Adam. He needs to be like us in every way, to experience temptation like us, but prevail. To prevail, to earn us the righteousness that is needed to enter the very presence of God. As we briefly consider these attacks that the devil um, sieges upon Christ, one theme that that you will see in each one of these temptations is that the devil wants to steer Christ off of the path of humiliation. Most of these temptations are not in themselves sinful. They're just not appropriate to this time in Christ's life. As we read in Philippians 2, the great Christ hymn, We know that Christ had to walk the path of humiliation before he could taste exaltation. He had to be born like a servant, taste death on the cross, and it's only then that he will be glorified, resurrected, ascended, and have a people one for himself. But there's no glory without the cross, without humiliation. And what the devil's trying to do is say, "You, you don't really need to walk the path of suffering, the path of humiliation. Why don't you just take the glory now and bypass the cross and the suffering? But without the cross and the suffering, there is no glory. So let's uh, dive into these three uh, temptations. So you'll see that this passage begins with this note that Jesus had been fasting for 40 days, and the devil comes, right? Comes at this point of weakness, vulnerability with his temptation. Verses three, through, uh, verses 3 through 4, we read, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus' response is, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Now on the face of it, We may, we may wonder, well, what would have been wrong with Christ turning these stones into bread? I'm sure he was quite hungry after fasting for 40 days. What's wrong with that? Again, in itself, there's nothing wrong with Jesus miraculously turning stones into bread. But this would have been the wrong time to do so. Because if he would have done so, it would have betrayed a lack of trust in his father. He would be testing God. 
And that's why he responds with this quote uh, of saying, man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus believes, trusts his father to not let him starve. That God will provide for him, whether naturally, supernaturally, God will provide for him so that he can continue his mission. And if he would have uh, succumbed to this temptation, it would betray a lack of trust. An attitude of, I'm not quite sure. Is God going to provide for me? Let, let's see. Let's test. And that's why Jesus refuses. He trusts in the provision of his father. Well, Satan, after, after uh, being unsuccessful in this first attack, he moves on to the second. In verses 5 through 7, we see that the devil takes him up and shows him the kingdoms of the world, likely the Roman Empire, and says to him, To you I will give this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. There's a bit of irony here. Satan offers Christ the right to the kingdoms of the world. Throughout the Old Testament, we see prophecies that the incarnate Christ will reign, reign over this world, not just the church, but even the common sphere, the common kingdom. Christ is king. However, this would not have been the proper time for him to rule the kingdoms. This was the time for suffering, for humiliation, for the way of the cross. Yes, that moment where he would be seated at the right hand of the Father and reign over all things. That day is coming, but not yet. First, he needs to walk the way of the cross, and he cannot bypass that part of his mission. And then in verse 7, Satan, again, takes away all subtlety and asks Jesus himself just to bow down to him. And here, again, we see that that strong parallel to the serpent's temptation of Adam in the first few chapters of our Bibles. As one author said, what's on the line here is whether Jesus will be God's Messiah or Satan's Messiah. Whose allegiance will Christ submit to? But again, Jesus responds, By saying, it is written, you shall worship the Lord God, and him only you shall serve. Now in this final third attack, the devil himself uses scripture, tries to twist God's God's word and cause Christ to trip up. In verses 9 through 11 we read, and the devil took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. This is very similar to that first attack. Satan's casting doubt on God's protection and care of of Christ. Is God really going to take care of you? Let's test him. Let's see. Let's see how how good his angels do in protecting you. Again, this would have been an act of unbelief if Jesus would have submitted. It would have been been a test. A statement that, that that Jesus doesn't fully trust his father to protect him, and therefore he's just going to test it out. 
see if these promises are really true. That's why he quotes from Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6 says, uh, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This is an allusion to Israel's uh, time in Israel's history where they were complaining. In the wilderness, they're complaining. uh, We don't have water to drink. Why why do we leave Egypt? God commands uh, Moses to hit this rock, water gushes, and the whole lesson from this story, which the Psalms allude back to, Deuteronomy 6 alludes back to, is that Israel did not trust that their father, God, would provide for them. And therefore, out of unbelief, they tested God. And Jesus, by quoting this, is is really saying that this situation is similar to that. If he would give in, this would be a test, a test of unbelief towards God, his father. So you see that theme, that theme of the devil wanting to, to steer Christ off of that path of humiliation. Now, to, to take one step back from, from these, these temptations, in Reformed theology, we confess the fact that Christ was sinless. Right? Christ was sinless. He lived on this earth and, and, and was perfect. Body and soul, heart, mind, and actions. But we also confess something even stronger, uh, which is this is a, really a, a Christian doctrine broader Christian doctrine, we confess the impeccability of Christ. What that means is that it's not just that Christ didn't sin, but that it was impossible for him to sin. We, we get to this doctrine because Christ isn't just human, he's also divine. And therefore, if we say that it was possible for Christ to sin, we are saying that it's possible for the second person of the Trinity to sin. So we say it's impossible for Christ to sin. That leads us then uh, to that question of how can we say that Christ was tempted yet without sin? Because in our own experience, think about when you're tempted. Your temptation begins with a desire, a root desire for something that is wrong, sinful, depraved. In our sanctification, we we grow more and more to to not act upon that desire, but temptation begins in that heart, in the heart, where we have that, that first inclination towards that which is wrong, that which is against God and his ways. And Christ, of course, didn't experience that because he was pure of heart. He had clean hands, as we saw earlier in the service. So I think it's important to make a distinction between external temptations, external threats, and the internal temptations. Christ did not have internal temptations. He never once experienced any desire that was out of accord with God and his law and his ways. But there were external threats, threats with, with things that, some things that were in themselves not sinful, but were been improper for that time. Brothers and sisters, this passage is good news for us. Remember what I say at the beginning, In this sermon, we're exploring how we relate to this idea of a test, this idea of a probation. And Christ has passed the test. He did what Adam didn't do. Right? He obeyed God rather than the devil. And yes, you might say, well, he still has years to live, right? This isn't his entire life. But this test is a a sort of microcosm for his entire life. 
That Christ is perfect. He fulfilled all righteousness. And as we continue to see in the rest of Scripture, that's true. He rose again from the dead, which testifies to his perfection. He has passed the test. He has earned the reward. He has earned the righteousness, the eternal life that we failed to earn. Boys and girls, it's sort of like, uh, let's say there's a, a big test coming up in school, a test that you are completely unprepared for. And you know walking into the classroom that day that you are failing this exam. There's no doubt about it. And you get into your chair, and all of a sudden the teacher walks up to you and takes your exam, and your teacher fills out the exam for you and writes your name on it. That's what we see in this passage. God himself, this is God's test. Remember, this is God's test. But he himself is taking responsibility to pass the test for us. He has taken the test, wrote your name on it, but he performed it in Christ. That's the good news of the gospel, brothers and sisters. And when we trust in Christ, when we are in Christ, we are no longer in this test. We are no longer in a test. We have gotten the job. We have made the, the sports team. We have gotten into college, whatever it may be. Right? We have... We are in the family of God. But we're still called to obey God rather than Satan. As we all will attest to, these temptations still come to us day in and day out. But the only difference is, is the threat of death and the promise of eternal life has been revoked from that principle. So now we obey God truly out of gratitude, not out of fear, but out of gratitude, because we are no longer in the test. Christ has passed the test for us. That is to say, once we see Christ as Savior, it's only then that we can see Christ as an example. So first and foremost, when we read the Gospels, Christ is presented as our Savior. Only then we can see Christ as our example. And so, as we move towards the conclusion, uh, well, my third and final point, which will be brief, I just want to consider for a few moments what life looks like outside of the test. Right, what, what does life look like outside of the test? Well, just as you know, the Holy Spirit comes upon Christ and drives him into the wilderness, this is a great analogy for the Christian life. You know, the Holy Spirit comes upon us and drives us out into the metaphorical wilderness. You know, before we were converted, we were at home in this world. Our citizenship only resided in this world. But then when the Spirit comes and can, converts us, gives us new life, what happens? We instantly become pilgrims, exiles, sojourners in a strange and foreign land. Because we have been granted a much greater citizenship in the world to come. That is, we are now in the wilderness. Wilderness is not a place to call your home. It's a place you pass through. And just as Christ was tempted at a point of weakness, so after 40 days of fasting, so too the devil... He knows our own particular weaknesses. They might be situations, times, seasons of life, places, where we're particularly vulnerable to the devil's attacks, his temptations. And he capitalizes upon those. You know, Peter says that he's roaring a, a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It's the devil. So I'd like to uh, just briefly consider how this this gospel, which we just got done considering, 
like Christ passed the test for us, how it applies now to us um, um, uh, being able to obey God rather than Satan, to resist the devil's temptations. So again, that first temptation where the devil casts doubt upon God's provision. Whether God will provide for our material needs, he tempts Jesus to turn these stones into bread. And the devil tempts us in that way too. Will God provide for our material needs? Will he give us our daily bread? What happens, the devil wants us to see those material earthly needs as ultimate. They are our greatest needs. If God doesn't provide in the way that we think he should, he he must not care for us. He must not exist. But what we need to recognize is not that those needs are indifferent or don't matter, but that our ultimate needs are spiritual in nature, and they've already been met at the cross in Christ. The wrath of God, the condemnation of the law, our own sin, that's been met. We've been delivered. We've been granted the greatest provision one could ask for at the cross. If God has already met these in Christ, will he not also give us our daily bread? This is exactly how Paul reasons in Romans 8.32. He says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also in him graciously give us all things? God went to the length of sending Christ. He's not going to give us our daily bread, give us all things in him. But Satan wants you to forget that. He wants to make your earthly material needs ultimate. Well, again, that next temptation of the devil is about pursuing personal glories. He shows Christ the kingdoms of the world and says, all these will be yours. And here I think that the devil attacks us with this very same temptation, personal glory. We all, I think, by nature are glory hounds, right? We, we, we want that recognition. We want the, to present that image in front of others. And we go to great lengths to protect that image. We live for that image. In fact, in a lot of ways, social media has capitalized upon this trait of human nature. We love to present ourselves in an idealistic way and go to great lengths to protect that image. What's that image? Well, that's our desire for personal glory. But God says to exercise delayed gratification, to take that desire we have for personal glory and aim it to the life to come. We are promised glory, much more glory than anything in this world could offer. But we first have to walk the way of the cross. Just as our Savior was humiliation before exaltation, in the same way his people. We walk the way of the cross before the way of glory. And this is what we need to remind ourselves. That we do have a glory, we have treasure, that moth and rust will not destroy, awaiting us in in heaven. The final temptation has to do with protection. Can will God protect me, my loved ones, those around me? I think in a, in a very similar way to that first temptation, the devil wants to make that ultimate. Make our earthly enemies, whether animate or inanimate, make those our ultimate enemies. But we also need to recognize that our ultimate enemies are much, much greater, much more deadly. They don't just kill the body. They have ability to kill the soul as well. And it's those enemies that we've been delivered from. Our own sin, God's wrath, the devil, 
God has promised and has delivered us from those decisively. And at the end of Romans 8, this is what Paul himself says. He says that nothing can separate us from the love of God. He goes and quotes Psalm 44. It's a psalm of lament, psalm of, uh, where, where the psalmist is saying, we're being killed all the day long. And Paul says, yes, even in these circumstances, you can know that nothing, whether life or death or anything else, will separate you from the love of God. Satan wants to do whatever he can to make you forget that important reality. Therefore, when we recognize that our desire for provision, glory, and protection has already been met in Christ at an ultimate level, does it make our earthly cares and concerns um, indifferent or uh, um, in the eyes of God, but it puts things in perspective. So when we, we experience these temptations, we constantly need to go back to what Christ has done in his test, in the gospel. Therefore, beloved in the Lord, as I mentioned in the beginning of this sermon, this passage on the one hand could be referred to as, uh, from Satan's temp- uh, perspective, this could be referred to as the temptation of Jesus, but according to God's perspective, this is the testing, the probation of Jesus. And because Jesus has indeed passed the test, we can now serve the Lord out of love and gratitude. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the life of Christ that we can read about in the Gospels. And we can see in in very vivid ways how he has triumphed over the devil and has won for us the prize of eternal life and salvation. We pray that we constantly go back to that good news as we seek to triumph over the devil and his temptations and attacks in our own life as we go out into another week. We ask all these things In the name of Christ our Savior, amen.